Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And we are your killer couple critiquing and arguing over horror films, like a couple of weirdos at the bar. So, maybe we never quite enlighten you, maybe we never blow your mind, maybe we never toss you into a vat of red clay to rot forever. (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully you just have a good time listening. So, today we are continuing our theme of Home Sweet Haunted Houses. With the 2015 film Crimson Peak. So, this is directed by Guillermo del Toro, uh, who was born in Mexico, uh, worked as a makeup artist actually for a while before debuting his first feature, Kronos, which if you've never seen it, is excellent. (laughs) Uh, Ron Perlman plays a villain in it. He's very good. (laughs) Let's see, he then did Mimic after that, which was his first big Hollywood feature, uh, but had such a bad experience working on that, which is unfortunate because yeah. I do really love Mimic, but you can kind of tell, you know, that the studio was a bit restrictive, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> he ended up going back to Mexico after that and did Devil's Backbone. Uh, eventually came back to Hollywood, though, and did Blade Two, Hellboy, and then, of course, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water. He has his film Pinocchio coming up. So uh, which will hopefully be good, and I'm sure it will because it's Del Toro. He also works as a producer. He produced the film The Orphanage, uh, Splice, which we've talked about on here before, Mama, The Strain series, the film Antlers, which came out, I think, last year. I don't know. Time is <laughs> weird. Uh, time is weird these days. <laughs> the film was written by Del Toro and Matthew Robbins. His first feature was Sugarland Express. He also did the films MacArthur, Dragon Slayer, uh, Warning Sign, which is like a ripoff of Predator that's kind of amazing <laughs> in how bad it is, <laughs> uh, and also wrote the script for Mimic. The film stars Mia Wasikowska, I probably said that incorrectly, as Edith. Mia is an Australian actress who first appeared in Suburban Mayhem. Uh, she did the film Rogue, which is a really great uh, alligator, I think, attacks movie. <laughs> Uh, she starred in Alice in Wonderland, Jane Eyre, uh, Lovers Le- Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, a film called Piercing, which is fantastic. Uh, the film also has Jessica Chastain as Lucille. She started in TV and starred in her first feature, Jolene, then went on to do other horror films such as Mama, where, you know, she probably became acquainted with Del Toro, uh, <laughs> It Chapter 2, X-Men Dark Phoenix, the film also has Tom Hiddleston. You know, this, this little-known actor is Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> Who the fuck uh, is as, that? <laughs> as Thomas. Tom was born in London, did a lot of TV movies before his big, what I would consider his big break, playing Loki and Thor. That's what and, we all know him as. Right, and since then, you know, he's basically been Loki in any Marvel movie that Loki shows up in. He was also in Lovers Left Alive, Con Skull Island, where... I, I think some of you might appreciate that he, what, like, gets shirtless or something at some point. No, he <laughs> slow-mo kills monsters. Okay, I thought there was, like... Oh, I'm uh, sure he does get shirtless at some point in time, but I think yep. the sexiest moment is when he slow-mo kills monsters. Uh, th- that's probably what I'm thinking of. I mean, he shows his <laughs> butt in this, you know, so... <laughs> that's true, we do get butt. <laughs> we do get butt. But, 
But uh, let's see, it also has Charlie Hunman as Alan, uh, an English actor who started in TV as well before starring in before starring in Nicholas Nickleby, also did the films Cold Mountain, Children of Men, and Pacific Rim. Uh, so those of you that have not seen Crimson Peak, it's essentially about this young woman named Edith who meets this charming, what is he called, a baronet? Yep, he's a baronet. <laughs> this charming baronet named Tom and his sister and falls in love with him and is whisked away to Tom's rundown mansion called Crimson, or nicknamed Crimson Peak, and there she discovers ghosts warning her about, well, you know, to say any more would be to spoil it. So <laughs> this film is streaming on Netflix, so if you've not seen it, please check it out there. We're going to spoil everything with it. Uh, that being said, we do have a brief little bit of spoiler-free content, so we'll let you know when we're getting into the spoilers. So just as usual, tagline versus the film, what we think of it. So the tagline for Crimson Peak was, Beware. <laughs> That, and that's, that's, and it. that's it. So what do you think of the tagline? <laughs> what do you think of Crimson Peak overall? Uh, you know what? Short but sweet. It works, I guess. No. No, oh, come on. <laughs> um, I very much love Crimson Peak. Um, you know, Matt's the one really on here who he knows directors and he follows them and all that kind of stuff. Um, Del Toro is one of the few directors that I hardcore follow because I love his aesthetic so fucking much. Yeah, and I've gotten to meet him a couple times and you haven't. <laughs> Rude. Yep. <laughs> you know, Crimson Peak is such a gorgeous film. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite, like, gothic horror stories that we have. It's a really cool kind of modern adaptation. I mean, it's not modern because it's period, but modern made no i okay i think the word you might be looking for is it's a modern made gothic romance yes you know so it's thank you (laughs) so it's an old-fashioned type of storytelling Mm -hmm. but through a modern lens exactly if that that helps yes that does (laughs) so speaking of that you know this is one of those films that I just never got the hate for. You know, I think that it's one of those... There's hate for this movie? Yes. Uh, oh. Because because a lot of people consider this film to be boring or, oh. or, or the plot to be non-existent or thin or whatever. And, and look, everyone's right. welcome to their own opinion. But the thing that I think with Crimson Peak is that, for one, I believe the marketing team failed the movie because... Probably. Because it is advertised as a spooky haunted house movie, and that's just not at all no. what Del Toro was going for. You no. know, Del Toro did want to tell a classic gothic romance tale. Mm-hmm. That does not mean horror. You know, yeah. that does not mean scary. Uh, what that means is it is a love story, you know, in one way or another. You know, if you listen to Del Toro talk in his commentary about this, you know, you can definitely sense the disappointment from him in the way that the film was received because he actually mm-hmm. considers it to be like his most beautiful movie that he's made i would agree and it, I, visually i would certainly say so and you know y- he himself the way he looks at it so the argument towards you know the lack of plot <laughs> if that if that's how you view it is that you know for him a, a story like this and i agree with this a story like this isn't about the plot it's about the characters yeah you know, character first, plot second. And so, in a sense, the characters kind of are the plot. And so that's kind of why I'm looking forward to talking about this movie, because I think that the characters themselves are all fascinating. Yes. You know, there, there's a lot going on with all four of these main characters. And it, and saying that, I will agree that, like, the plot is not great. You know, it's it's mm. relatively predictable and all that kind of stuff. But mm. again, that's not the point. You know, the point is to 
uh, embrace these characters and the depth of the characters. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that part of it is done exceptionally well in the movie. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And it's something that I'm kind of surprised to hear this because one of the things that I love about Del Toro is Matt knows that I can be hit or miss about plots. What I really care about with movies is the characters. Do I like them? Are they interesting? And it's one of those things that Del Toro's always done well in his films. He's always done a really good job of creating these complex, interesting characters. And the plot is always there in his movies, but it is always about the characters. And that's been true in Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, yeah. Del Toro, you know, Del Toro's kind of like, I I consider myself somewhat similar in our writing styles. I mean, Del Toro's obviously a master and I'm not, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, you know, I I consider myself more of an emotional, character-driven writer and that's how Del Toro is. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's always less about the plot and more about the people. And so, so you know, he you definitely run into problems with that type of storytelling, though, because people are always looking for, like, the twisty plot and, yeah. you know, something to really pull them in. And, you know, the... the <laughs> The, uh, the emotional element of it isn't always what grabs people, right? So, <laughs> Which is too uh, bad. Which is too bad, but I mean, that's just how it is, and that's fine. It, yeah. it is what it is. But um, So anyway, so we are about to get into spoilers of the film. So again, if you have not seen it, please go check it out. Streaming on Netflix, well worth your rental dollars. If you don't have Netflix for whatever reason, get with the times. It's yeah. Netflix has been around since like the 90s. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe you've dumped Netflix because they're a piece of shit company. So who knows? But go rent it. Go rent it. It's worth your money. <laughs> go watch the movie. Uh, go watch the movie. So anyway, we're going to get into spoilers now. So spoiler time. All right. So let's just start off with the fact that like Del Toro, uh, Edith is similar in a sense because Edith is this character who, upon first meeting her, she's written this ghost story which she is well she doesn't call it a ghost story but she's written this story with a ghost (laughs) (laughs) story with a ghost which she is pitching to a publisher and and has brought the manuscript and he basically tells her oh a ghost story and essentially leaves it at you need a love story with it (laughs) so so what are your thoughts on edith and this plot point as well as the fact that she lives in this world where she's being told you must have a love story in your story with a ghost (laughs) Yeah, so <laughs> I have to agree with with Edith's reaction to it, like on surface level, that it's just sexist as fuck. One hundred percent. Yeah, I, I mean, this is why she says after the meeting, "I've learned my handwriting is too feminine," mm-hmm. because this was at a time where I mean, look, <laughs> women writers in general were not respected for a very, very, very long time. No, there's a reason you know? why the Brontes originally published under male names. Right. And, and, you know, just for the longest time, we have writers like Shirley Jackson and Mary Shelley, who Edith compares herself to in the movie. Uh, but, but, there, but the examples of, of female horror writers, like well-known female horror writers, are few and far between. Yep. And it's not because they're not out there. It's because they were never given the respect and attention they deserved. So Edith is dead on that she, it's an acknowledgement that she lives in this sexist world that is basically like, you know, basically the same mentality that studios had for a long time, where it's like, oh, women don't go see horror movies, it's just boys. <laughs> and, it, which, you know, again... Fucking wrong fuck, about that. Well, wrong about that, and, and fuck this, like, binary element of it all. It's yep. not just men and women and all that kind of stuff. But the but they had this idea that horror is only for men, mm-hmm. you know? And, and women, women shouldn't indulge in such nasty things or whatever, you know? And so... 
so she's acknowledging that and i i love her just kind of being like i have to you know type it so mm -hmm. they can't read my handwriting <laughs> fuck these guys um because that is an acknowledgement of like how these industries can sometimes be industries all over the place discriminate against almost Everything. anything you can imagine <laughs> <laughs> anything that they can find to use against you they will Exactly. And so Edith is living in this time where if you're not a white, straight male, mm -hmm. you're not getting published, yep. you know, or at least not getting this type of story published. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is a period of time when, you know, women didn't have a whole bunch of rights. They didn't have a whole bunch yeah. of agency over their own lives and all of that kind of stuff. Having said that, I do have to say that the comment's super sexist. But it does bring up, I think, what is a reoccurring point with Edith throughout this movie is that Edith, for all of her very, like, sense of self and confidence, is a very sheltered woman. And mm. that's kind of a product of the times, you know, women just kind of were more sheltered. But the way that I kind of view this almost kind of call to action for Edith, too, of, like, you need a love story is also she needs life experience. And it's something that she hasn't really had. Um, and we kind of see that her, her father's very protective and very supportive of her, which is really dope. Like, he gets her a pen so that she can keep writing. He gives her access to the typewriter. Whatever she needs, he wants her to go out into the world and find herself. He is definitely not of the mindset of, you need a love story. But Edith does need to go out into the world. Yeah, see, I, I both agree and disagree with you here. Because um, on, on one hand, I agree with what you're saying, that... Part of the point of Crimson Peak and of Edith's character is that she is someone who needs to live. Yes. You know, she is someone who needs to get out into the world mm -hmm. and live life, you know, because the the idea with the ghosts is that the ghosts are about living in the past. You mm -hmm. know, that's uh, like I've talked about on, on, on the other episode this month so far, like ghosts are often used to symbolize the past and our inability to escape from it. Mm -hmm. And that's part of where Edith is, although... I believe Del Toro argues more that Edith is living in the present, whereas it's Lucille who lives in the past. Oh, absolutely. Um, which I totally agree with. Yep. But but either way, she's not she's not really living her life, you know. Mm -hmm. So so I agree with you there that she needs that experience. Yep. You know, it, we but always she doesn't need a man. <laughs> yes, and that's yep. the thing is that is that you know I, I agree with the writing take of like write what you know. I agree with that sentiment, and mm -hmm. people always misconstrue this as like oh, so I guess I can't write about space because I've never been to space. No, it's not yeah. about that. Write what you know applies to write about the feelings that you understand. You know, yeah. write about the emotions that you understand. That's what it's referring to. Uh, because like it is pointed out in the movie, if you've never experienced love, it's a lot more difficult to write about love. Yeah. You know, because you, like, like Tom says to her at one point, you know, she is basically reflecting through her writing what love is through this idea of what writers have told it her is, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so I agree with all that. The part that I disagree with about the editor being correct is that like you said, mm -hmm. she does not need a man. Yep. And, and more importantly, she does not need love. You know, no. this, this is the other thing that this is where I find Crimson Peak to be fascinating movie is that through this whole time, you know, we're, we're introduced to her very first words, which I believe are ghosts are real this much I know, you know. And so from the beginning, she's acknowledging that ghosts exist. She has this fantastical view of the world. She knows that. She knows that part of it. And the thing and the story that she's presenting to the editor is this fanciful tale that is a tale with a ghost, you know. Yeah. And, and basically... 
we're being she's presenting this story that is being misinterpreted to be a ghost story when it's something else. Mm-hmm. And Crimson Peak is the same thing. You know, aside from it being mismarketed as a horror film when it's actually a gothic romance, uh, which I, I find it so interesting <laughs> that the film fell into the same boxes as Edith's story does, yep. is that the, the interesting thing about it is that I actually don't even really consider this a love story. Because to it's me... It's a warning. More or less, yeah. Because to me, the the whole idea of what's happening here is after Edith is told that she needs a love story in her work. Mm-hmm. You find out later as Tom is reading her work that she put it in, you know, and, yeah. and she defends it of like, oh, it's just a couple chapters. But she gave in. She gave in to the demands of the male world around her mm-hmm. instead of being true to herself, which is being this woman who wants to write the goddamn story <laughs> she wanted to write without a love story mm-hmm. and who wants to die a widow, you know, like she. <laughs> and she. And well, she does. Well, she becomes a widow. She becomes but, a widow. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she, but essentially what's happening, and hopefully I'm not losing you all here, but essentially what's happening is that the story that we're being told is the false story which Edith is writing about. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole relationship between her and Thomas is really this false love story. This love story which is absent of the emotions of what love really is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's Edith's idea of love because it's a first love. It's a first crush. Mm-hmm. She doesn't actually know what love is yet, but she will by the end of the movie. Yeah. So the whole time we're watching this, we're really experiencing the shitty version of Edith's story that she's changing to fit the demands of the world of what it wants from her. It wants her to be with a man. It wants her to, you know, love some guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But by the end, she's learning like, this is about her growing and realizing that shit's all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do agree with you. And I think the interesting thing to note is that this movie opens with a a book face that is Crimson Peak written by her, and it closes with that. So this very yes. literally is the story that Edith wrote, and it very much is her pulling from life. And one of the things that I love about it is it is Edith's a giant fuck you to this editor of like, you want a fucking love story? Here's your love story and how it all goes wrong. Right, like, exactly. Like, it, it, that, that mm-hmm. book opening is your clue that this is not actually the love story that you think it is. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and it's one of the things I am. One of the things I'm going to be talking about a lot in this episode is the brilliance of the costuming, because the costuming for this movie is so on point with pinpointing where the characters are in their personal development and how they feel about the world around them. I have to bring it up because when I say that Edith is sheltered, when you look at her costuming in the beginning, she's wearing these very rich, opulent clothes. They're very modern. They're very cutting edge. Um, but she fades into every background she's in. Mm. She's wearing gold and the walls around her are always gold. She's wearing like this green dress when, um, when Thomas comes to the house before the ball and her bedroom walls are green. So she, and she likes menswear a lot in the beginning. So she's very self-possessed, but she hasn't learned that confidence yet that we get at the end where it's about going out into the world and living and watching the costuming. Seriously, just watch the costuming throughout the entire entire film it's so cool it's so well thought out and i'm glad you mentioned that because the fact that she uh dresses a little bit more Mm male-like at times because and that's not always true i mean she was wearing dresses here and there but but she does dress a little more masculine at times Mm -hmm. and throughout the movie 
the the sicker that she's getting, which I sort of see as a metaphor for like the relationship killing her, mm-hmm. and not you know the actual killers killing her. <laughs> yeah. The the sicker that she gets, the more feminine she becomes. You know, the more feminine and 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 the the weaker and fragile she's perceived as Lucille initially sees her just mm-hmm. because she's beautiful. You know, yeah. um, and and so she's kind of becoming more and more of what the world wants to view her as you know, as this, like, fragile beauty, mm-hmm. and it's literally killing her. Oh, it's it's not only that. Look, there's there's some really great articles online because I read a couple other people talking about the costuming. So if you're interested, seriously, like, just Google and check some of those out. But it's not only that bec- she becomes more feminine, but her coloring is bright. Whenever mm. Edith is herself, she's wearing golds and yellows. That's why she has the bright yellow dress after she finally gets to fuck Thomas, because mm. she feels in control of her life again. But when she's not feeling in control of life, when she's dying, not only is it more feminine, but she's wearing the sharps colors, which are the teals and the greens. It becomes more subdued, and all of their costuming is older. Yeah. Like they're not in she, fashion. She's more dressing like them. It's so cool. Well, well, not and not just more dressing like them, but she also she she starts to live in sort of this more black and white world, right? Mm-hmm. Because she, for the most part, after she gets to Crimson Peak, she is dressed in this like white nightgown, right? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's and that's where I'm getting the femininity from. Is like the white nightgown is obviously very feminine, and it, and so she's sort of like kind of living in this more black and white world which again Mm. is that world that's like you have to do this you have to do that you have to marry a man and all this kind of bullshit and then at the same time her being in this like white outfit it's basically sucking all the life out of her Mm -hmm. you know it 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 sucks all that out of her and her portrays her as like this innocent woman this fragile innocent child yes and you know, and so that's kind of what they're saying there. So. It's exactly what they're saying because that white nightgown that she's wearing is the exact same style of nightgown that she wears as a child when her mother's so, ghost comes yep. and warns her, ostensibly warns her against Crimson Peak. So there you go. And, yeah. and, and so two things about the, the mother's ghost visiting her is, one, that's actually based on an experience that Del Toro's mother claims happened to her. Mm-hmm. So that's so this movie is very personal to him. And, and you know, if that, if that makes you watch it any differently – very personal movie for him uh but also you know in a sense that scene's kind of like the mom sitting down to have the birds and bees talk you know <laughs> like hey be careful of fucking dudes especially <laughs> dudes from crimson peak <laughs> don't fall uh, for the first man you meet essentially yeah is mm-hmm. what that is what that is see we're, we're 20 minutes in and hopefully we've already made this movie more worthwhile for you yeah, i don't know hopefully. but <laughs> or, or at least or at least you know seeing that it's a, a lot smarter than maybe it mm-hmm. first appears i don't know i also really love the conversation that edith has uh with alan about how we perceive ghosts you know because alan is this uh ophthalmologist opto- i never <laughs> say that word correctly he's an eye doctor <laughs> and he and he basically you know uses a man who is colorblind as an example of like how we see ghosts where it's like the man will never see you know red or green he just accepts their existence because everyone says so right Mm -hmm. and i kind of like the idea and i could be wrong about this part but i kind of like the idea that part of the reason that some of the ghosts are red and and that we and that there is such a heavy use of red and green in the film again sort of reflecting that sort of color blindness mm-hmm. is that you know aside from the clay red is also a color of love mm-hmm. you know and i feel like 
Edith seeing these ghosts and being surrounded by so much red, I feel like part of that is this idea that like she is <laughs> essentially accepting the existence of love because everyone tells her to. I, okay. You know, I I, I don't I, know if I necessarily agree with it, but I like it's an interesting point. Yeah, it, that that one's a bit of a stretch, I'll admit, <laughs> but <laughs> but I but I just like this idea that like she is seeing those things because everyone is telling her that they're there, mm -hmm. you know? So it's almost like it's almost like Edith is, you know, uh, sort of manifesting this idea of love. Because that, that to me is kind of what's happening throughout the movie. So whether or not you agree with my, 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 my theory about the color of the ghost there, mm -hmm. it, it still remains that the idea of the movie is that Edith is essentially forcing a love. Yeah. You know, she doesn't really know what it is. She's forcing it because everyone tells her it's there. Yeah. So I absolutely agree with you on that. And I that's why I think that her and Thomas's relationship is really interesting just because they both get into the relationship ostensibly seeing the other person as a symbol of something they want, yes. but not acknowledging the person for who they are. Yeah. Flawed relationship from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> you should flawed, flawed is a very light term. You should, you should never date someone for money and you should never date someone just because they're a fucking cute face that yes. walked in. You know? <laughs> so, you know, aside from ghosts being reflective of the past, you know, I, I also view them as reflective of Edith's intuition in this movie. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that sort of like sixth sense that tells you something's wrong here. Yep. You know, because we see the ghost pretty much coming about every time before she has an encounter with Tom. Yeah. You know, at, at least initially. Like, once they get to Crimson Peak, it's a different story, but... I love that you keep calling him Tom. Because he's a Tom to me. His so. name is Thomas. <laughs> he's a Tom, fancy lad. He's fucking Tom Hiddleston. I don't have to call him fancy Thomas. Fancy lad. He's <laughs> fucking Tom to me. He's not fancy. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's he's a douchebag who is pretending to be fancy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, like, we have the, the initial warning in the beginning. Beware Crimson Peak, whatever. And... You know, what do we see, like, a couple scenes later, it's Edith, you know, meeting Tom. And then the scene where her mother, again, is, like, outside her door and trying to warn her happens right before Tom shows up at her house, you know? Mm -hmm. So so it's these ghosts that are acting as an intuition to warn her of it. And then once she is a Crimson Peak, it, it acts a little bit differently, but, they're still, but they still have the same goal is all of these ghosts are her intuition – telling her that something is wrong yeah you know something's wrong that she's not noticing and it's kind of like you know those feelings that you get in a bad relationship at a certain point where you know you start to have those sort of doubts to yourself of like you know oh is is this right you know is, is it supposed to feel like this that kind of thing yeah and and to me that's what the ghosts are like she's she's gradually learning of like fuck <laughs> I, I married, i'm gonna die here <laughs> well fuck i married this guy and came all the way to this house and i'm realizing that mm -hmm. oh the honeymoon phase is over and maybe yeah. i don't actually love him the way that i thought i did you know <laughs> yeah it's it's really interesting because i kind of view the two of them as ostensibly two children who are ostensibly playing at life well that's what they are yeah both of and, them and, and lucille <laughs> I, I would make the argument differently with Lucille. I don't we'll get to Lucille, but okay. I'll, I'll explain why then. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll argue. But yeah, specifically with, with Thomas and Edith, I think on, on Edith's side, like I've already mentioned, she's been so sheltered that 
the only romances that she's read would have been in books. So all of Thomas's flowery language and how he talks to her, it would kind of line up with drivel, <laughs> romantic drivel. It is. It is crap. It <laughs> Every, is absolutely drivel. Everything Tom says to her during like the first half or so of the movie is pure and utter bullshit. Yup. You know, and it's so frustrating. And, and looks, it's meant to be, but it's so <laughs> frustrating sitting there as an audience member and listening <laughs> to him talk to her like that and just be like, no, Edith, you fool. <laughs> He's, he doesn't mean it. It's crap. <laughs> but you know, when, when that's all that you really think about when it comes to romance, because it's clear that she has had feelings for Alan in the past, mm. but she hasn't been sure what to do with them because Alan, unlike the romantic heroes of the novel she's probably read, Alan treats her with respect and like an equal and he doesn't talk flowery language he does you know give her praise for who she is because alan sees her maybe that's the whole reason why he's a fucking eye doctor who knows (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean yeah i think i think some of that symbolism is there too is he actually sees edith for who she is it's one of the things i love about crimson peak is the symbolism is pretty on point and even i can pick it up it is, but I but like I've said before, I think that's good sometimes because I love it. I know it. <laughs> well, well, it 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 adds a richness to the movie that mm. everyone can appreciate. You know, yeah. so the thing with the love is that you know you're absolutely right. Like it, even though I've argued this point on on other episodes, like when we talked about Videodrome, I, I will admit that there is an element of media, whether it be film, books, music, whatever. That, that does have an influence on us and not in the sense that that the argument for Videodrome was where it like makes us do something, mm-hmm. um, but in the sense that it does influence a little bit the way that we think about things, you know? We get so, societal expectations. Right. So media, media never forces us to do anything, but what it does do is it gives us those expectations, you know? Mm-hmm. So like you've been saying with Edith, if all she's ever experienced with love because, you know, her mom's been dead since she was a child as well. So she yep. didn't even really have much of an experience of, like, just witnessing, you know, Parental natural love. love between her parents, right? Mm-hmm. So so all of the idea that she has of it, especially being a sheltered child, is that, you know, love is whatever she's read about. And whatever mm-hmm. she's read about is going to be those really fanciful, you know, like, cheesy, romantic yep. stories where where nothing is actually how it is in the real world, right? Yeah. Um, like everything Tom says about her, her story is 100% correct. Yes. It's, it's cruel and it's mean and you mm-hmm. feel awful for her, mm-hmm. but he's dead on. He's right. That, that is, that is like the most truthful, that is the only truthful moment to me that he has in this whole film <laughs> is, is, is that moment where, well, he has a couple towards yeah, the end, but that, the end, yeah. but that, but that's his, mo- one of his most truthful moments is mm-hmm. what he says to her there. You know, she just has this misconception of what love is and she's mm-hmm. living in, in a fantasy. Yeah. You know, I feel like the same thing goes for Tom. They're both weirdly sheltered in their own way because Thomas is also super sheltered by his fucked up childhood. Well, he's trapped there. He's never grown up from there Mm -hmm. because that's all he's ever known. Exactly. And he the only love he knows is a very twisted and violent (laughs) love. You can say that again. (laughs) And so it's interesting, I feel like, watching the movie, because I think once we get towards the end, is when we see both of them kind of open their eyes to the situation. Edith, I think, becomes a little bit more aware of who she married. And I think it all kind of comes together at that that 
the fuck scene, the sex scene. <laughs> because right before that is really Edith going, we can be anyone, we can escape our chains, I did, I left, you can leave too. And I think Thomas has been playing with that this entire time, and she's so different to what he's used to. What what is so what is so uh, nice about that moment <laughs> is that is that you know other than fucking in Tom's butt. Um, <laughs> that was a nice that was a nice thing. Uh, I still say we should have gotten to see Edith's butt too. You know, equal no. opportunity nudity, but male but, but, butts only. Both butts. But what's nice about that scene is that I mean cheeks for all, right? <laughs> what's nice about that scene is that you know essentially that moment is both of them throwing off the shackles of their sort of confined lifestyles right because mm-hmm. edith has lived her entire life in wealth you know like you mentioned she's always dressed in gold well she's also surrounded by gold constantly like yeah. all all she knows is the the high society lifestyle mm-hmm. and it's the same with tom to a degree i mean he's not living the same you know high <laughs> society lifestyle poor <laughs> He is poor. He is poor, but he's grown. Up, he's basically grown up in like a a once prominent yes. high society lifestyle. He mm-hmm. basically lives with the idea that he's supposed to have that life. That he's supposed you know, to be an aristocrat. Yes, essentially, and and so they've they've both lived in these sort of confinements that were put these chains that were put on them from childhood, and the moment where they do you know sleep together in this tiny little cabin is is important because it's not just them building the relationship between each other it's both of them accepting this part of the world accepting mm-hmm. this lifestyle accepting uh you know this the idea that money is not everything because yeah. they don't have to be in their you know respective mansions mm-hmm. to be comfortable the cabin that they're in is perfectly fine <laughs> yeah because both of these children and i'm going to refer to them children even though they're adults both of these children are incredibly passionate about their things mm-hmm. um edith loves writing and and thomas loves inventing and like he just so happens to be using it to try to save his family and his family home but these two are two characters that really when you get down to it they don't need or want anything outside of the world except for to be able to follow their passions yeah um and yet they've absolutely gotten trapped by all of that shit and apparently fucking is what frees you. Right. And, and, you know, this this whole movie, like, Crimson Peak is all about, for every character, honestly, just learning who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, learning learning who they are and accepting who they are instead of, you know, being confined by what they sort of feel like they've been brought up in. You know, instead of, instead of feeling like they have to be a certain person. You know, Edith especially, because that's mm-hmm. what we've been talking about, where she's being told to be one thing and when she's something else. Uh, but Tom and Lucille are both going through that as well. You know, they're both going through this idea of like, I'm supposed to be this thing. I have to have this thing. And the world outside is essentially scary, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so no, that's an important moment. Uh, I, I also really want to quickly mention too, I, that Del Toro does so many really uh, great things with the filmmaking here because uh, early on when I just love the way that Thomas and Lucille are both portrayed because if and, and you know you don't have to look too hard to to notice these things, but but it, during that whole first act, like Chris was mentioning earlier with the colors, everything's very bright. You know, mm-hmm. Edith is in bright colors, everything around them's gold, all that kind of stuff. And the only time that we really get a hint of darkness is when the ghost shows up, and when we are seeing Tom and Lucille in their kind of respective natures, right? Mm-hmm. So you have like the shot of. Lucille 
you know, seeing Tom breaking up or whatever with, with Edith, she's shot in, like, complete darkness, you know, totally hinting at, like, okay, femme fatale villain here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then the moment I really like is when, is when they're, I think they're at the funeral for Edith's father, and, and, and Tom says, I'm here for you now, as she leans into him. Well, when she does that, the frame is completely filled by darkness mm -hmm. because she leans into him and he's wearing like this black cape or something like that. And, and the whole frame just turns black. So it's almost, you know, it's implying that like Edith is leaning into this darkness. She's leaning into this evil, essentially, <laughs> you know, this, this terrible outlet because of the death of her father. Yeah. I mean, it's an all black frame until it pans down to the bright red ring. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's Crimson Peak. It's one of the things of, you're right, the coloring for the most part is it's either super bright in the beginning or we get dark teals once we get to Crimson Peak with the exception of the bright red that's throughout the entire film. And personally, my favorite beginning moment for that is when we first meet Edith, or sorry, is when we first meet Lucille because you pointed out Lucille for the most part is in dark colors for almost the entirety of the movie except for the first time we meet her at the ball when she is wearing an all red dress that was specifically made to look like the ghosts of Crimson Peak because she's living in the past exactly <laughs> you know which I feel like ties really well into just everything that's kind of going on with the house not only do we have the blood red ghost but the fucking blood oozing out of the goddamn walls which I feel like is, as we pointed out, a very on-the-nose symbolism for the past just bleeding through into everything that these characters are dealing with. Yeah, no, Lucille, you know, she, she is the Red Queen. She is, <laughs> she is Crimson Peak Incarnate. And <laughs> she will fuck you up. And she will mess up your day. Um, you know, but look, this is what I, this is what I love about the house and, and the clay symbolism and all this kind of stuff, is that it, it all... So basically... One of the other themes here with the movie is the idea of of privilege versus hard work, you mm -hmm. know, privilege versus earning something. And this really applies to Edith and Lucille, who are essentially these characters that have grown up with privilege. Uh -huh. But it's like um, it's like a <laughs> it's, it's this weird version of privilege where they are poor. But again, they're trapped in this idea that like they deserve wealth, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's very American of them. It's very, <laughs> it's very like I'm born in America, so therefore I should be a millionaire, you know. <laughs> and so, like, like they're very consumerist driven in that sense, right? Or, or they're very capitalist in that sense. So they, they, they believe they deserve this wealth. And what's really kind of interesting about Crimson Peak, the the place, is that, you know, all of the red seeping through it. You know, you can take that as one. You can take that multiple ways. You can take it as like, oh, the the love red color symbolism. You can take it as the the blood of of sins every, of the past. The, the sins <laughs> of the past seeping through. And and I look at it that way, but in a slightly different way than I think you are, because mm -hmm. they're because the one way to see that obviously is like, you know, okay, they've killed all these people here. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the literal so, blood. You so know? <laughs> so it's almost like literal blood seeping through the walls, you know, and mm -hmm. the the sins of yes, Lucille and. And Tom's past, but I look at it a different way. Where, you know, if you look at Crimson Peak as kind of being this place that was once, you know, this like factory run by a bunch of people, and you know, Tom even mentions himself, like it's it's hundreds of years old. I'm sure many souls have come and gone here. Uh, the way I sort of take that is kind of what is implied with a lot of these haunted house movies, 
with these old ancient houses where a bunch of people have died is it's you know the people that have died are almost always the people that built the place that are working on the place Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing and so the way that i kind of view that is that i i look at crimson peak like it's this place that has been built on the backs of of the poor you know it's been built on the backs of the people that you know tom and his family rule over or whatever Mm -hmm. the hell they do i don't really know how (laughs) baronets work you know but (laughs) i mean i feel like edith was pretty succinct within the beginning that they're parasites that feed on the back of their workers 100 percent, yeah so so you know i i view these two as those kind of parasites that have they're this family this generational family that has built their life on the backs of others you know Mm -hmm. And so I see all the blood kind of pouring through the house as representative of that sin of the past, of the idea that they've built their whole life on the backs of other people Mm -hmm. because they're really doing the same thing uh, with the murders of the women. You know, it's essentially the same thing. They're just they're just sucking the blood of some of of someone wealthier, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're still doing the same thing where they're not earning any of their wealth. They're stealing it. They're siphoning it from someone else. And so. You know, so so that's what I view that all the clay kind of coming through the house as being representative of mm-hmm. is just the the blood of generations that they have essentially sacrificed to to build their shitty, you know, their, <laughs> their shitty crumbling their, empire, their shitty goth mansion, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah, and for me, like I feel like that's really prominent in the fact that where the clay seeps through the most is actually in Lucille's room. Like that ending room where on where Thomas dies and all the shenanigans happen. That is yes, the shenanigans. <laughs> the shenanigans. There's a lot of shenanigans that happen in that room. Sexy that's what you sh- want. If that's what you want to call them. <laughs> sexy shenanigans, murdery shenanigans. You know, hair braiding shenanigans. All sure. <laughs> Her room is almost entirely red with the seeping of the clay, which I think is really interesting, considering that she's the one who murders everybody and poisons everybody. But I think another note for that, I do agree with you. Everything's built on the backs of other people. But that's also why this is a dilapidated, rundown house. Like, you just, you can't sustain like if you if you don't put any work in yourself, that sort of lifestyle is just not sustainable. I mean, I would disagree. Politicians have been doing it in America forever, so <laughs> and their house will crumble too one day. I'll believe it when I see it because That's so true. far they're fucking killing us. Yeah, so, I know. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't agree with that idea that it will eventually not be sustainable because rich, wealthy people that are part of the 1% have a pretty good track record of, <laughs> of murdering uh, and stealing, of, of keeping that going on the backs of people, you know, because mm-hmm. it's really, really difficult to bring them down. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, look at Trump, for God's sake. He's a fucking cockroach, you know, like, That's true. I, I don't know that he will ever get his comeuppance, but <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but, you know, so, so no, I don't quite agree with that. The, to, to me, the, the crumbling is really more representative of the fact that, you know, th- these are two characters who, are crumbling internally mm-hmm. and, and honestly the relationship of uh of edith and uh, of edith and tom you know is crumbling from the moment she walks in from the moment she walks in their their dream you know their goth palace already has a hole in it yeah you know it already has a hole in the roof with all this shit seeping through all this ash and crap and whatever mm-hmm. and it, you know it's almost like there's this hole in her heart already you know that <laughs> that she's trying to fill with this relationship because of the death of her father and it's just not going to happen, right? Yeah. One quick thing I want to say, too, about the the idea of the foundation thing is that, you know, to sort of hammer home my idea here <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, that, that the clay is the blood of the backs of others, mm-hmm. is that 
when we when when Tom first meets his father and he's having that whole sort of pitch uh, trying to get money for his stupid toy, um, <laughs> he you know he he passes around this bottle of clay and it's in liquid form, very blood like, yep. <laughs> and and he basically talks about how the clay uh, becomes a solid to form like the hardest Bricks. brick or whatever you mm-hmm. know, at like the hardest foundational strength you can find or whatever. And so whether or not any of that is true, it's still the idea of building a foundation on the blood of others. Yeah. You know, that to again, that's very much what all this clay is to me. And I love when his dad is or, or when Edith's dad is basically like, You've got the softest hands <laughs> I've ever seen. You know, it's like, yeah, Tom, you fucking little pretty boy bastard. <laughs> you know <laughs> He ribs him a new one. It's really impressive. He does. And I yeah. wish more I wish more rich people would be <laughs> would be ripped a new asshole like that in public. because uh, it, it is a really interesting scene between the two of them because it is you know, there is there's this fairy tale in American myth of of you know pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, which isn't really feasible. But yeah, I love that scene because it is hard work versus born into privilege, and you know those two things clashing. It's so cool. But you know who is working really hard? Uh, the audience trying not to vomit when they find out that, <laughs> <laughs> that Lucille and Tom are are sleeping together. You know, like it's basically this this whole twist with the incest. With the incest, I think speaks really well to the idea of this, you know, wealth and privilege and all that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. my first read on it, other than being grotesque, is that, <laughs> <laughs> is that you know, we've talked about this before. We're like on other episodes, I, I think society being one of them, where the wealth like this is very incestual. Yeah. You know, well, wealth like this is very inbred. <laughs> you know, it's that whole idea of, of, oh, you know, the... The, the kings marry princesses and all this, or the princess marry princesses and all that kind of crap or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, these wealthy bloodlines try to keep it in the family, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and that's kind of what this initially makes me think of, is mm. that is that basic concept of generational, of generational wealth and the way that it is kind of incestual mm-hmm. <laughs> in the way that it continues. Yeah, the, it's definitely... The wealthy are very incestuous, and I think that it's also the way that I view it is how the movie sets it up is that they had a very abusive, you know, home life and all that kind of stuff, and the Mm. only people that they could rely on was each other, and so they became very, like, secluded, just the two of them. And I think that that also kind of ties in with this idea of generational wealth and not just generational wealth, but the aristocrat, because I think that both of them have this weird idea that nobody can understand them. Nobody could possibly relate to them. You know, they are only unto themselves. Only those two will understand. And it's such bullshit. Well, I think Lucille has an idea. I don't think Tom does. And this is. Yeah, but Tom was raised by Lucille. Well, Tom was raised by Lucille. Tom, you know, they're a different kind of relationship that is similar in the sense that, like, where where Edith is having this sort of fantastical view of love and what it means because it's all she's ever known. Mm-hmm. Lucille and Tom are going through the same thing, where all they have known is this kind of love, mm-hmm. and for each of them, it's a little bit different because. For Lucille, it's an abusive love. She yeah. only knows how to be an abusive partner because that's what her parents were. Mm-hmm. You know, like she has that conversation where she mentions that uh, she'd take care of her mom in the same bed that Edith is in, 
and how you know her father was a brute and like broke her mom's leg or whatever it is that she says and so that is lucille's interpretation of love that is how she knows it to be Mm -hmm. so she views love a partnership as really not being a partnership she views it as being controlling and sort of like owning property in a sense right she expects (laughs) Um, love to be painful Right. She expects love to be painful and sacrificial and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff and just basically not pleasant. Yes. <laughs> and, and Tom, in response to that, expects something similar. But Tom is more of in a he is being controlled mm-hmm. kind of mindset with love where he's always been the younger child. Lucille has always been in charge. She's always the one who takes care of things and does everything. So he's kind of been the one to sort of grow up just thinking like this is how love is you just have someone tell you what to do all the time you know and and you just do whatever they whatever they want whatever they ask of you no matter how much it hurts you or makes you uncomfortable because that's love right uh so so every character in this film really these main three are just living in these horrible boxes of (laughs) of of abusive love (laughs) and 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 in that regard you know none of it's really actually real love you know no like i'm like i'm sure that you know edith and tom have some kind of love for each other you know Mm -hmm. something that they believe is love i'm sure tom and lucille have some kind of love for each other or what they believe is love but the fact of the matter is is that none of it is actually true love because none of it is healthy love yeah you know and and they and like we were talking about before None of these characters have really lived in the world, so they really have nothing to compare it to to actually know what true love is. Yeah, so. it's, you know, it's this really interesting thing because, like, on with, like I've said before, with both Edith and Thomas, they've been so sheltered. Thomas didn't have to see the abusive relationship between his parents. Thomas didn't have to deal with the beatings from his mom. Lucille took all of that. And so it's really interesting because on Lucille's side of everything, yeah, everything is pain. She knows how harsh things in, you know, after she murdered their mom because their mom found out they were fucking, you know, after that, Tom got to go to a cushy boys school and she went to an institution, which at that time would have been horrible. Oh, yeah, would not have been. I mean, look, Zero institutions stars. never a place, never a place that that has been well known for being good, but but yeah. definitely not a place you wanted to be then. And mm-hmm. uh, so I meant to say this earlier, but that whole speech that Tom gives Edith when he's like just ripping her a new one mm-hmm. uh, about her work, the thing that's cool about that is I actually, well, you know, depending <laughs> on your definition of cool, uh, the thing about that is that I actually view that as him venting about Lucille. Because he goes off on Edith about, like, her interpretation of love and how she doesn't know love and love is pain and all that kind of stuff. On one hand, he is describing his own interpretation of love because of Lucille, Mm -hmm. you know, where he says it's pain and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I think he's also either consciously or subconsciously venting about Lucille's interpretation or, or his love with Lucille because he is telling edith that you know love is not perfect like what do you want a perfect man you know all this kind of stuff he he's he's trying to shatter that sort of childish interpretation of hers and at the same time later in the film lucille refers to tom as perfect mm-hmm. and you know so so i sort of took that as like lucille views her relationship with tom as being perfect yeah she doesn't see anything wrong with it Nope. You know, and and so that moment, him venting, I think, is him 
being frustrated with that and knowing somewhere that it's not perfect. And, and, you know, and so in a sense, Lucille is actually just as childish, if not more so as Edith. And this is why I disagreed Mm -hmm. with you before about her also being sort of trapped in this kind of childish uh, prison because everything that Lucille has based her life on also comes from when she was a kid. She's yeah. she's experienced adult things like knowing the abuse between you know her parents and all that kind of stuff, and and she is more like I don't know <laughs> uh, able to handle the world in a sense. Yeah, I would um, agree. Look, because she's more ruthless, but mm-hmm. but I still view her as trapped in this childish prison because everything she's based her life around comes from when she was a kid. She hasn't let go of this twisted relationship with Tom. <laughs> She hasn't let go of that. She hasn't let go of the idea of what love is based on her parents from when she was a kid. And she hasn't left her house. You know, she hasn't left Crimson Peak. And she's wearing red in the beginning because she cannot escape Crimson Peak. She cannot escape the past. She can't escape anything from her childhood. She's trapped there. I absolutely (laughs) agree with you. I think that out of all of the characters, Lucille is the most trapped out of all of them. She's she's also the most fascinating to me. You know, like Edith and Tom are are fine Mm -hmm. and and interesting, but they're they're basic compared to Lucille. (laughs) Yeah, Lucille is like an interesting, just like ball of kind of crazy genius because she is she's ruthless and she sees shit and she's so smart. Um, and it is really unfortunate because she is. She's the most trapped character that I don't think really does get to grow in the end. And it's it's why, like, her outfit has always been my favorite, because while Edith changes costumes throughout the entire film, once Lucille gets to the house, she does not wardrobe change until the very end. And you could take an interesting thing with they're poor, they don't have extra clothes, but Lucille's outfit is a very constrained... Well, this is a movie. We, we, know, a movie. we know that the costume is intentional. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Lucille's outfit for the entire rest of the movie is a blue color that matches the house because she is the house. Yeah, 100%. Um, she yeah. is Crimson Peak. Yeah, she's got that. She's got the black vines in the lace that are all wrapping up, and it's, it's just so smart. And honestly, I think out of everybody, Lucille is the most tragic character because oh, yeah. she doesn't escape. She never escapes Crimson Peak. Even oh, with her e- fucking death, she doesn't escape. No, and that's the thing. Even with her death, she's still stuck there playing the piano like she has yep. been since she was a child. You know, yep. she she literally cannot escape the past. She is the past. Yeah. You know, and it, past personified. Yeah, basically. And the other thing I just want to quickly say about Lucille is that I also love that she's basically a serial killer. Yeah, <laughs> like, she is. Like, you know, that that's not really mentioned in the movie uh, so directly, but... She collects but the hair. She keeps trophies. I mean, yep. that's what serial killers do. She keeps trophies of the girls. She does not need to keep their hair. No, but and she, her mom. And her mom's hair. Yep. But she keeps the hair of all of her victims because she is a fucking psychopath, you yep. know? <laughs> And and I I love that honestly I mm-hmm. love that she is secretly a serial killer that's not acknowledged being a serial killer because mm-hmm. the other thing too is they never really had to kill all of these women <laughs> like they, they didn't have to do that you know and so but you know why not but 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 Lucille has that be the plan because she never admits it but Lucille likes killing she does <laughs> she likes killing and she doesn't want to share Thomas. Right, she likes killing, she doesn't want to share Thomas, and again, she believes in pain. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think that part of that is she really likes killing all of these women that Thomas becomes involved in. So, okay, so here's a fucked up way to view this, is you can see 
you know you know how like some of us go through these really bad breakups right we're like we we have a hard time moving on in a new relationship because we're stuck in the past of the person that hurt us you know mm-hmm. and and so it makes it, it for some of us it makes those relationships fail until we finally get over that and then we can start fresh right yeah so i almost kind of view lucille and tom in it in a sort of sense where it's like if you want to look at it one way you can look at it like tom's been trying to to move on and to see other women and that kind of thing but every single time lucille is this past this piece of his past that comes in and destroys that Mm -hmm. you know i mean quite literally when you live with your ex well, yes, but you know what I'm saying. Like metaphorically, like yeah. that's kind of what that's kind of what that is. Is she is destroying every opportunity that he has at love mm-hmm. because she's part of his past that he also cannot forget. Yeah. So with this ending too, like yeah, it's it's super tragic that Lucille is trapped in this house for forever because yep. <laughs> she can't move on, and mm-hmm. that's really sad. Uh, whether or not you like Lucille, that's pretty sad. Pretty tragic. And on either side. The thing that I love with her here, speaking of costuming, is that so you have that conversation early on in the film where Lucille and Edith are talking about butterflies and moths, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the symbolisms there are probably pretty obvious. Like Lucille is a moth and, and Edith is a butterfly. Yep. And Lucille's mindset is that because Edith is a butterfly, she must be weak and fragile Mm -hmm. because Edith views herself as a moth and she views anything that is, you know, pretty and beautiful like Edith to be fragile. Yeah. So this end, first of all, is awesome (laughs) because I I just love Edith (laughs) smacking her in the head with a goddamn shovel (laughs) (laughs) and being like, bitch, I ain't fragile. (laughs) Um, I love that part about it. But on a visual side, the the white that Edith has been wearing, you know, let's say that it represents that sort of childish innocence. Mm-hmm. I love that she's in that white nightgown for the end because it all ends up covered in blood. And I take that, you know, sort of, which I think is a pretty traditional way to view it, is that I take that as her now being covered in the experience of life, <laughs> you know, yeah, I... in, in being covered in that that innocence has been shattered. You know? I mean, to be fair, if we want to look at when people kind of consider women to outgrow childhood, it's when they first get their period. So Yeah, her, that's there too. Yeah. The like, blood. Yeah, the blood, it, sex, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the thing that I love, it's it's a gorgeous ending, super tragic. I love the fact that Thomas shows up again, and Thomas gets to escape. He gets to move on. He's one of our very few all-white ghosts, and because he's the only one who actually moves on, as mm. opposed to all the rest of the ghosts that hold on to things like edith says at the end but like the real quick costuming thing it's edith his childhood but when you look at um lucille's costuming she looks like a ghost she's got she's in all white as well but she's got the big flapping sleeves um so she looks more like a spirit as she's running around in the goddamn snow with her giant fucking meat cleaver oh i see when she's still living she yeah looks when like she's a ghost. still <laughs> living yeah no no when I, they're when they're facing off at the end for for a second i was like of course she looks like a ghost in the end she's a fucking yeah. ghost <laughs> when edith turns into the ghost she's you know there's we've got like four red ghosts one white ghost and two black ghosts um one black ghost is the mom but it, 
uh, Lucille as the other black ghost, it very much is is a holding on to the past more so. Mm-hmm. But she's also the only one that we see the facial features of. Everybody's become more gaunt, more ghost-like, more skeleton, even if they just died. But with Lucille, she's still human. And I think that goes back to something that Thomas says in their final confrontation. And that's, we've been dead a long time. Both of the siblings have been dead in that house. They just haven't had the energy or what have you to move on. Mm. And Edith showing up, you know, sends, sends Thomas to finally move on in that sense. And, you know, for Lucille, she still, she truly dies and becomes one with the house, which is super tragic. But she's a gorgeous ghost, so it's okay. She is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Chastain. Uh, so, uh, so the other thing I, re- I want to quickly mention, too, is that, um, you know, in regards to like Edith being covered in blood, not only is it sort of a shattering of her innocence, but I also kind of see it as again reflective of the theme of she has also been stained forever by Crimson Peak. Yes, you know that that is symbolic of the fact that she has been stained forever by this love, and that is now the ghost that will haunt her moving forward. Yeah, you know, so that's a bit of a tragic ending as well for her. Mm. It's not it's not happy that she no. gets that she gets out of this relationship and and survives. Like obviously that's great that she does mm-hmm. but <laughs> but the ghost but, will still be there but it still imp- it still implies that yes she she'll be haunted by this past in the same way that we're all kind of haunted by those really bad relationships you know mm-hmm. like like we no matter how far you move on from it there's always that small little drop of blood on you that that has stained you forever so. <laughs> yeah i mean i am the their mom's ghost straight up tells edith his blood will be on your hands the oh mom, so there you go yeah the mom's just <laughs> like fuck you his death is on you you're gonna have to cope with that well right and and yep. you know again i kind of take that as maybe not just the mom saying like all right let me tell you about sex but just, <laughs> but but i but also like you know that that sort of like parental wisdom of <laughs> you understand as an adult that 99% of the time uh first loves are not going to work out yeah <laughs> you know and that and that's kind of the mom being like be careful yeah because if you fall too deeply it's really going to fucking hurt and it's going to stain you forever yeah. you know Again, not not to be pessimistic and be like, don't fall in love, <laughs> but 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 again, but it is about you know this movie's about learning what love really is, and Edith kind of learns like, okay, that wasn't really love, that was mm-hmm. a crush, yeah, you know, and now I kind of know better, yeah. hopefully. You just gotta be prepared for the blood splatter. <laughs> now I know who I am and what I want, and maybe I won't let this happen again. <laughs> is the hope. Um, but all right, so we gotta start wrapping up. So who is your killer idiot of Crimson Peak? Okay, for me, it's kind of the dad for confronting two murderous siblings and then not being more aware of his surroundings. Come on, man. You gotta know they're coming for you. See, I wouldn't even say that because the the dad the dad knows what he's doing, you know? Yeah, the, and he's to trying be, to get him away. Well, remember, the dad doesn't know that they're murderers at the time. The dad mm-hmm. just knows that, that Tom's already married. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he knows that they've asked for money before. He doesn't know that they've been killing women. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think he would have given Tom a check. Um, no, I would argue that the dumber one is Alan for showing up in the end and knowing that they're murderers and knowing that they just tried to murder Edith and not being armed with a weapon and saying, I know you're both murderers (laughs) and I know you both tried to kill Edith and now I'm going to take her out of here without a fucking weapon, you know? (laughs) This will be fine, guys. Alan is the one who is the dumbest motherfucker in this movie. Okay, you're right. Who the hell barges in the Crimson Peak 
with two murderers that you know for a fact are murderers, and you're just like, I'm not even going to bring a pen to arm myself with. <laughs> and I'm going to lay out my entire knowledge to them as I drag Edith out of here. I'm not just going to be like, oh, wow, she's hurt. I should take her to a doctor. I'm <laughs> going to get her in my arms. I'm going to say, I know what you two <laughs> fucking did. And now I'm going to get on this horse of mine and travel for six hours in the winter snow where you can he, easily catch up to me. <laughs> he doesn't even have a horse. He came on foot. So there you go. I'm going to slowly <laughs> walk away from this house for six hours through the snow after I've just told you that I know who you are and what you've done and I'm going to turn you in. Who the fuck is stupid enough to do that? Ellen is very <laughs> entitled. That'd be, that'd be like me walking into a mafia mob boss's office with all of his bodyguards around and walking in and being like, hey, motherfucker, I know what you did and I'm going to go tell the cops and there's nothing you can do about it. And he's going to be like, you are in my fucking office <laughs> surrounded by armed men with guns. <laughs> You You're may- not leaving, dumbass. <laughs> Maybe the ballsy move works sometimes. No. Not for ne- Alan. He gets stabbed it has liter- twice. It has literally never worked in a movie. <laughs> uh, so no, Alan is by far the dumbest character in this film. Uh, what about your killer death? Uh, look, I really like I really like Thomas's death because it is so emotional. And then he gets a dope-ass ghost, and I really like his ghost. So I'm really in it for Thomas's ghost. Eh, his ghost is whatever. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to give it to uh, the father, played by Jim Beaver. We actually haven't mentioned <laughs> Beaver this entire time. I'm going to give it to the father, played by Jim Beaver, because, um, look, Del Toro did not need to go this hard <laughs> with that death, but he does. Lucille and, was pissed. Well, and that's the thing, is Lucille is a very angry character, mm-hmm. and and that's why I love this death scene, is you really get a good sense of how much anger and hate is in her. Mm-hmm. Like, that death is violent. It is brutal as fuck. She does you know, not like being called out. Like, like for this gothic romance, like, you you just don't see it coming. I remember the first time watching this movie and just being so taken aback just because there's nothing that prepares you for such a violent death in this film, you know? It sets you up that he's going to get killed with the, the straight razor to the throat. Well, well, not. I'm not even saying that. It, 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 yes, it sets up that smashed. You, you, like you, you, you understand at some point he's gonna be he's going to be killed. But I'm yeah. saying like this is one of the most violent deaths that I've seen Del Toro put in a movie. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's just it's so shocking, um, and it just it does it really expresses like that pain and rage of Lucille's you know uh, misinterpretation of love, uh, and, and I also love Del Toro just describing the way they shot that, because he's basically like, yeah, I wanted to build the most beautiful bathroom you've ever seen because something ugly is going to happen in it, you know? Uh, like, I, I just kind of love that love idea. Man. He's great. Uh, anyone who's never listened to a Del Toro audio commentary for one of his movies, I cannot recommend it more. He is so insightful. You have to listen to it if you're a fan of his. It's, it's great. Um, but... Yeah, so that's my killer death. Uh, what about your killer MVP? I feel like you know who I'm going to say. Uh, I have to give it up to the costumer, Kate Harley, because it's just, the costuming's so beautiful. There's so many details. It's gorgeous. It's so it, pretty. Very very good costume design. Yeah. I, I would highly agree with that. I'm going to give it to the production designer, though, just because I Fuck think yeah. that this is a gorgeous movie. Like, every set is beautiful. <laughs> um, and, and And so much of it was built for the film, as far as I understand, unlike... You know, The Haunting, which we did. I did say I really love the production designer there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but The Haunting was still shot in a real place yeah. um, with, you know, alterations. But but no, just this this film is so gorgeous. I, I watched this movie and I cannot believe 
that Del Toro was not given the Haunted Mansion movie because that's basically why he made this is because he didn't get to do Haunted Mansions. <laughs> he snuck Haunted Mansion wallpaper into this film. Because I know. Yeah, no. He, he wanted to do Haunted Mansion. I don't know how the fuck you're Disney and you say, nah, I don't want Del Toro doing Haunted Mansion. You dumbasses. <laughs> they're, they're also fucking stupid. Yeah, they are yeah. my Disney's my killer idiots. Yeah, you know? they're the killer idiots of this Bunch film. Bunch of fucking morons working <laughs> over there, you know? So yeah, no, production designer. Uh, all right, so every week on Twitter at Killer Critics, we always put up a poll kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film and what you think of it. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, I've never seen it, where do you think the audience fell on Crimson Peak? It's Del Toro. It's love it. It is not. <gasps> uh, so <laughs> Betrayed. I, I told you this movie is not as well liked as we like it. So uh, love it got 33.3%. Uh, it's fine. One with thirty six point seven percent. Okay. Uh, don't like it with six point seven percent, and a surprising twenty three point three percent have never seen it. Oh, so, sad. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, this is this is Guillermo del Toro, right? You yeah. gotta you gotta go, go watch it. go watch every movie he's ever made. The man is brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. Um, so if you haven't seen it, please go do so. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, so we always get comments from you all as well. So these are all from Twitter. So first up is at Craven Carpenter. So that's C-R-A-V-E-N Carpenter. And they say, crazy, underrated, a beautiful movie, and one of my favorites from Del Toro. Obviously, we agree. Oh, I am. Gorgeous film. This is, for me, my number two because Pan's Labyrinth was my first and so will forevermore be my favorite. I also prefer Pan's Labyrinth. I'm not sure this is my number two, but I will say I do think it is his most beautiful movie. Agreed. Uh, definitely his most visually gorgeous film. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you at Craven Carpenter for the comment. Appreciate it. And then we only had a couple. So last up is at Sarah Musnicki. So that's S-A-R-A-H-M-U-S-N-I-C-K-Y. And Sarah actually um, writes for Nightmarish Conjuring. You should check out her work there. She does great stuff. Uh, but she says... I honestly regret not seeing it in theaters. That would have been lovely to see on a big screen. I am also sorry for you because being able to see it huge is amazing. But hopefully maybe it'll come back. <laughs> Chris is like, oh, yeah, you totally fucked up. <laughs> I don't mean it no. like that, but I, no. I get that regret. No, I'm just kidding, Sarah. Um, Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Like, like I told Sarah, I hope that this movie comes back to theaters at some point so that everyone can get a chance to go see it if they did happen to miss it. Because uh, it is such a lovely movie. It, yep. re it really is. It deserves to be seen on, on a big screen, IMAX, whatever you can get it on. Uh, and, and I hope that at some point it gets that treatment because that would be great. Uh, so thank you at Sarah Musnicki for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, so as far as releases go this week, a uh, few pretty interesting ones. First up is Piggy, which is now on. And these are all out by the time you're listening to this. First up is Piggy, which is on VOD. Uh, this is basically a film about an overweight teenager who is bullied and it makes a choice, and I really don't want to say much more than that because I'm afraid it would ruin the movie, but she makes a choice that she has to live with, and it gets very dark after that. Uh, so, <laughs> so it kind of falls into like the, the Revenge of the Bullied category, but this is one that I, I really love. Like As someone who was bullied as a kid, I really love the way that, it, that the subject is approached here. One of my favorite movies of the year. Definitely check it out on VOD if you're curious about it. It's great. Um, Next up is uh, the new film from Dario Argento. I think it's been like 10 years since he had a new movie, uh, Dark Glasses, which is now on Shudder. I will admit I'm not a huge fan of this one. I think it has a ton of issues, but that being said, I do think that it's uh, 
super stylish, bloody, uh, very fast-paced. You know, I kind of described the movie as moving at, like, the pace of a bat out of hell. It's just very much, like, in-your-face <laughs> kind of a film. Uh, the score's great. So a lot of it feels like an Argento movie. You know, it, it's definitely better than the last few movies we've gotten from him. So if you're a big fan of Argento, definitely go check that out. Uh, and I didn't say what it's about. It's, it's about a woman who becomes blind after an accident and finds herself stalked by a killer. And she's having to, like, you know, deal with that. <laughs> uh, oh. And then and then lastly is Halloween Ends, which is now <laughs> in theaters and on Peacock. And uh, look, this is going to be a very divisive film. I did not like it. <laughs> uh, but to be fair, I also did not like Halloween 2018 or Halloween Kills that much. I formed up a little bit to each, but I still think all three are bad movies. <laughs> uh, so, so take my opinion on this with a grain of salt if you have liked the others. Whatever expectations you have for Halloween Ends, put them in the fucking basement, burn them, bury them, turn them into ashes, bury them like 10 feet underground, and then, I don't know, set the house on fire. Like, it's... <laughs> Just whatever you expect Halloween ends to be, it won't be. Uh, and that's that's the best experience you can have is to just burn every expectation you have for the movies. <laughs> so, so that's on, on theaters and on Peacock. Check that out there. You can read my reviews for Piggy and Dark Glasses on KillerHorrorTrick.com. Check those out if you want. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the 2001 remake of 13 Ghosts. Which, very excited to talk about that. We're going to get into some fun ghost stories. (laughs) Uh, And that's one of the most fun. I fucking love everything Dark Castle did back in the day. Uh, So so we'll talk about that then. So go check that out. Otherwise, that's going to do it for us on Crimson Peak. So I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a great night, horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled, just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans.